Okay? All right. Let's turn our attention now to uh, the Word of God. Today we're going to be uh, beginning Matthew chapter 27. And uh, obviously, uh, Matthew chapter 27 is a, uh, an extremely important chapter uh, as it depicts for us the, the trial, uh, the beatings, the judgment, and ultimately the, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And so we will take our time as we go through it, much like we did uh, in chapter 26. Uh, of course, all four Gospels give account of the events that take place uh, on this very dark day. And we will look to glean uh, appropriate details from each of them as we make our way through uh, Matthew's account. Okay? Uh, we do want to, you know, the hope and the desire is that we uh, are able to get uh, a full story, uh, the full account of just what happened that day in history. Uh, this isn't uh, storybook time. This is history. This happened. And, and on this day, uh, the very Son of God willingly laid down His life and took upon Himself the punishment for all of mankind's sin. And so a very prominent day in history, if not the most important day, one of the most important days in all of history. And so uh, we will take our time as we go through it, okay? Uh, today we're going to cover the opening verses, verses 1 through 14. And so uh, will you please stand in honor of God's Word as we uh, read our text this morning? Again, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 14. Follow along, I'm reading from the New King James uh, Version, and uh, hopefully uh, if you're in a different uh, version, you'd be able to easily follow along. Verse 1 begins saying, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas... His betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Verse 6, but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Verse 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living, that it's active. Lord, that it's, 
it's able to cut to uh, the, the very heart of matters. And, and Father, I know that this is a, a portion of Scripture that most probably everybody in here has, has read or, or heard of at least uh, as we've walked with you. Lord, I pray that you would give to us fresh eyes and that you would open up our ears and open up our hearts and our mind to receive all that you have for us this morning. May we come with an expectation that you're going to speak to us and that you're going to reveal things to us, things that you want to do in our lives. And, and Father, may we be attentive to all of your Spirit's leading and guiding. We do ask for your blessings upon the children's ministry, those who are meeting uh, and serving. We pray your blessings upon them, uh, as well as the other churches and chapels. We pray your blessings upon them here in this community, those churches that are, are teaching your word and proclaiming the love of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray you do a wonderful work amongst them as well. We thank you for this time uh, just to be here, and we ask for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, in case you uh, haven't been with us the last few weeks, or, or in case you have a short memory span, uh, we're going to do just a quick little summary of events that have led us to where we're at today. Remember that Jesus uh, has been betrayed by one of his own, one of his 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot. Judas led a group of the religious leaders along with a detachment of troops to the Garden of Gethsemane during the middle of the night that they might seize Jesus and arrest him. As Jesus was bound and, and taken by the troops, we're told that, that all of the disciples forsook him. Okay? Uh, they fled, leaving Jesus alone uh, with his captors. Okay? Uh, we did see that, that Peter ended up following the Lord from a distance as he was led away. Uh, and through the night, uh, unfortunately, Peter would have uh, many opportunities uh, to stick up for uh, and, and make a stand or take a stand uh, for the Lord. But with each opportunity, he only distanced himself from the Lord more and more, ultimately denying the Lord three times and departing. And it tells us that he departed weeping bitterly. The religious leaders and troops, uh, they proceeded to take uh, Jesus before Annas the uh, former high priest and one of the elite members of the Sanhedrin, where he was questioned. Uh, he was even sucker punched by one of the officers there before being sent on to Caiaphas. At Caiaphas's house, the Sanhedrin gathered together uh, to falsely accuse Jesus of something that was deserving of death. Okay? And, the, and the entire meeting and the proceedings were absolutely illegal. Uh, we pointed out a number of reasons why they were illegal uh, against their own laws governing uh, the Sanhedrin, their own practices. Uh, but they didn't seem to, to matter to them. They, they, they did things illegally. Okay? Caiaphas, uh, seeing that their attempts uh, of, of bringing false accusation were failing, they were falling short, he plainly asked Jesus, Jesus, if he was the Christ, the Son of God, and to which Jesus affirmed, causing Caiaphas, you remember, he tears his clothes, uh, and, and he falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy. Okay? The religious leaders that made up the Sanhedrin, they agreed that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and deemed him deserving of death. And then they began their own assault on Jesus by spitting upon him. 
and slapping him and blindfolding him and punching him and, and mock, mocking him as they would say, prophesy to us, who is it the one that struck you? And this is where we last left off the Lord. Okay? Beaten and bloodied by false accusers. And our narrative continues here in verse 1 of chapter 27. And it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. The dawn of the day uh, is coming, and we find that the Sanhedrin are once again going to, to come together. The, the meeting and trial that happened through the night was illegal. Uh, and for their own rules, they actually prohibited any type of trial happening during the night. And so... Uh, they needed to give some semblance, a facade of sorts, of some type of legality to what they were doing. Uh, and so they had to reconvene to give this judgment of theirs a little semblance of a fair and legal trial. And so uh, Mark's gospel actually says it was immediately in the morning. And, and Luke's gospel says it was as soon as it was day. I mean, it's the, that idea there is that they're just waiting for that sun to peek over the horizon and that they may convene and cast their votes uh, again to give this facade of legality to their efforts. You know, it's amazing to me uh, how fixated they are on, on the outward appearance. They, they know full well that what they are doing is deceptive, that it's, that it's wrong, uh, but they want to have the appearance of being right. You know, they want it to look like everything is on the up and up. And, and they've put way too much stock in the outward appearance. And, and they've allowed their inner hearts to be corrupted. And as I looked at that, I, I, I thought, you know, man, that's, that's so terrible. But I also have to realize that that happens still today. And we should take notice of this and make sure not to fall into the same position where we care more about what others think about what the outside looks like instead of what God thinks about what the inside looks like. Because let me tell you this, it's the inside that counts. The Lord looks at the heart. If you guys remember 1 Samuel chapter 16, God uh, man looks at the out, outward, okay? but, but God looks at the heart. Okay? And, and, and these guys should have known that, but they've been blinded by their sin and their, and their hypocrisy. They're so concerned with making things look like they're good, but on the inside, it's all messed up. And, and we need to learn from their example not to be like that. Okay? To realize that God's concerned about what's going on on the inside. And he doesn't care about what the, what's going on on the outside as much. And so we have to be concerned and make note of that. And so they meet here, and in verse 1 it says, They plotted against Jesus to put him to death. They had to plot or scheme something together, because although blasphemy to them was a capital crime deserving of death, to the Romans they could care less about Jewish religious blasphemy. Okay? Uh, they needed to come up with a plan that would cause the Roman authorities to agree with them that Jesus was deserving of death. Speaking of the Roman authorities, we're introduced to a man that's new here in Matthew's Gospel in verse 2. Let's read it. It says, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. 
This is actually the first mention of the name Pontius Pilate in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. Uh, and, and we're not told many details about him from the gospel accounts. But we do have a lot of information about him from secular historians. Uh, and they give us some insight into this man and into the, his background, uh, the type of man that he was. As mentioned here in, in the book of Matthew, uh, Pontius Pilate served as a type of governor over the Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Historians actually identified Pilate as a procurator. Uh, as a procurator, he had full control uh, uh, in the province, being in charge of an army, which was actually stationed in Caesarea. Uh, and then uh, he also had a detachment of a, uh, that was on garrison duty, at Jerusalem, in the fortress Antonia. Okay? And the procurator had uh, full powers of life and death. The procurator could um, reverse capital sentences that had been passed down by the Sanhedrin. Uh, they, every uh, capital sentence that was passed on by the Sanhedrin had to be submitted to the procurator and had to be uh, ratified by him. And so uh, this man had a lot of power. And a lot of say. And history tells us that, uh, that, that, that Pontius Pilate despised being in Jerusalem. And he actually preferred staying in Caesarea. And would only take up residence in Jerusalem during festivals uh, and special holidays. Because that was what Rome demanded of him. Uh, when, when the festivals would happen, obviously Jerusalem would swell. And so to keep the peace, keep control, Rome told Pilate, during those times, you need to be in Jerusalem. You need to be on the site. Okay? You just can't have your detachment of troops over there and let them take care of it. You need to be there. And so during such times, he would bring additional troops with him to patrol the city, to keep the peace, as the city uh, would be just inundated with the masses coming to worship, to keep their religious uh, obligations during the festivals and the feast, uh, as many of them would just uh, come to the temple to worship. Now, first century uh, Jewish philosopher and writer Philo described Pontius Pilate, and in some of his writings he described him as by nature a rigid and stubbornly harsh man, and that he was uh, of spiteful, spiteful disposition and an exceedingly wrathful man. Okay? Uh, he also spoke of many ill acts of Pontius Pilate during his time as procurator. He writes of bribes. Acts of pride, acts of violence, uh, outrages, cases of uh, spiteful treatment, constant murders without trial, in addition to ceaseless and the most grievous brutality. Pontius Pilate was a very mean and evil, a, a wicked dude. Okay? He was uh, not a good guy or a nice guy. And knowing the kind of man that Pilate was reported to be, it helps us to better understand his actions and the situation that he's in. It sheds a light on it that I think is important. So we're going to, I want to highlight just some things about this man for us. Okay? Uh, Pilate had some difficulties in his rule. Okay? He had difficulties in keeping things under control in Jerusalem. And the higher-ups in Rome were keeping a close eye upon him. Jewish historian Josephus uh, tells of an incident where Pilate's army actually took winter quarters in Jerusalem and during the night set up images of Caesar within the city. Okay? Uh, and 
this obviously was uh, not very welcomed by the people. Uh, Caesar was believed to be and portrayed as a god. And so setting up these images of a god within Jerusalem uh, was a, a, a direct violation of the second commandment of making idols and setting them up for, for, in places of worship. And so in the morning when the Jews saw the images, uh, uh, there was quite an uproar. Multitudes thronged to Pilate's dwelling, demanding that the images be removed. And, and it was Pilate, though, he wouldn't listen to them. And he didn't care about them. Okay? In fact, they went to him and, and petitioned him time and time again. Six days they were there, history tells us. And actually on the sixth day... Uh, Pilate sent his own troops into uh, surround the crowd, and, and he basically demanded that they either leave or that he would have them all killed. And uh, remarkably, history tells us that the Jews, uh, I quote, says, threw themselves upon the ground and laid their necks bare and said they would very willingly take their death rather than continue to allow their laws to be violated. The idea that they said, you're going to kill us like here, take my, go ahead, kill us. We're not standing for what you've done. Quite an uproar. Uh, and eventually Pilate was uh, astonished by their resolution not to budge. He did command that the images be brought back to uh, base in Caesarea. Another incident that got Pontius into uh, hot water with the locals was a work project that he put together to build an aqueduct. Now the people weren't against this idea of building an aqueduct. It was just the idea of from where would the funds come to resource such an operation? Pilate planned to take the money from the temple treasury to pay for the aqueduct. And of course, the Jewish people, they protested. Uh, history tells us that tens of thousands came out against Pilate, demanding he stop his plan to use the temple treasury funds for this project because the money had been given to the Lord and for his work. And Pilate, again, this time he sent troops in to the crowd, but this time he, he had his men in regular apparel. And, and uh, Josephus tells us that they concealed daggers underneath their garments, and when Pilate gave the signal, they all attacked the people and killed a great number of people. According to history, a great number of men were slain that day at the hands of Pontius Pilate's troops. Tens of thousands of people were there, uh, a great, you know... Uh, uh, just explosion of chaos happened as the, his men would start going in and just wiping people out. And, and word of these types of events, they would spread and petitions would be sent to the higher-ups in Rome regarding a number of these types of incidents. And, and that's why Pontius Pilate was under a close watch. He didn't want to lose his position as procurator. And so he had to do whatever it took to ensure peace within Jerusalem. Not because he cared about the Jews, he only cared about himself. He cared about his position, his authority, and he didn't want to lose what he had. One more huge revolt or uprising or protest could be very costly to him and his position as procurator and any hopes of advancing within the hierarchy as well. And so the religious leaders, they escorted Jesus to Pontius Pilate, delivered him to Pilate, and the Jewish leaders had good reason to expect a favorable result when they went to Pilate, seeing as how ruthless this man was, in addition to how desperate he was to keep matters peaceful during the Passover celebration. Remember, this is the Passover. Okay? The, the place is flooded with people. There's people everywhere. If something were to happen, an uproar would happen, man, the, the chaos that would ensue would be uh, you know, devastating for him, uh, and definitely word would get sent up 
uh, to the higher-ups if anything happened. The reason it would seem that the religious leaders even brought Jesus forth to Pilate was so that they could have him approve of their sentence of execution. As I mentioned, as procurator, Pilate has the authority to overturn a death sentence handed down by the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin could not legally put anyone to death without the approval of the Roman procurator, without Pontius Pilate's stamp of approval. They were technically had their hands tied. Okay? Although, you know, we look at that and we say, oh, that's why he brought him to Pontius Pilate, because they wanted him to kill Jesus. Uh, And I don't doubt the reasoning behind their actions, but I do see something else at work here as well. Because if you were to look back through the gospel accounts and read through them, um, you read through an instance in the book of John, where a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and was uh, brought before Jesus. You guys may be familiar with the portion of Scripture, right? And the religious leaders, they highlighted how Moses said that such a woman should be stoned and demanded what Jesus had to say about it. What do you say? Moses says this. What do you say? And in this count, it would seem that this group of religious leaders, they were ready to stone her right then and there. In fact, Jesus told them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. The idea is that they got their stones, they're ready. And he's saying, okay, whoever is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And so even though the Roman law forbade them from dealing out capital punishment, it would seem that they were willing to, that they were ready to do just that. You know, and another instance is found in the book of Acts, where this time they did carry out a death sentence by stoning. You guys uh, may be familiar with the account of Stephen. Stephen became the first Christian martyr when he boldly witnessed before the high priest about God's work through the nation of Israel and through Jesus Christ. And Stephen accused the religious elites of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and of resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. And upon hearing Stephen's words, they charged after him. They cast him out of the city and they proceeded to stone him to death right then, right there. And so the question to me, it begs itself here, why not just stone Jesus yourself? You've been ready to do it uh, yourselves previously and you would prove to do it so in the future as well. We have a count of both of those incidences. Why not just do it yourself? Why not just take matters into your own hand? You've done it before. Here's the thing. Here's what I think. In spite of of all the terrible things that are taking place on this horribly dark day, the Lord is still in control. You see, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. And the scriptures speak of the Christ being pierced in the hands and feet in Psalm chapter 22. And how the people would look upon the one whom they pierced in Zechariah. These scriptures would not be fulfilled if the religious leaders would have stoned Jesus. There wouldn't have been any piercing. No. Jesus had to go before the Roman procurator. He had to go before Pontius Pilate. 
Because crucifixion was something that the Romans used as a means of capital punishment. God is even at work in these darkest of days. He is orchestrating these events, setting the stage for the fulfillment of His Word. Now, do I believe that the religious leaders were doing this to fulfill Scripture? Absolutely not. I don't think they were thinking, oh, we need to fulfill Scripture, and so we're going to do it this way and make Pontius Pilate do it. That wasn't what their thought was. Okay? They were merely pawns in the Lord's hands as He was setting the scene for His Son to fulfill the Scriptures and to ultimately pay the price for our sins and provide a way for us to be restored to Him. Even in the darkest of days, in the most difficult of circumstances, you guys, God is still in control. That's a truth that we need to believe. It's a truth that we need to be reminded of when we're going through some dark days and when we're going through some tough times. We need to be reminded that God is still on the throne, that God is still in control. We see evidence of it here in this going on between Pontius and Pilate. God is orchestrating these things. He's putting them together. And I want to encourage you guys today, God is still on the throne. He's still in control. While Jesus was before Pilate, something else was going on back at the temple. And we're going to kind of like, we're focusing here. We're going to zoom out and we're going to zoom back into another scene that's happening there at the temple. Let's read verse 3. And the first part of verse 4, it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. We'll stop there. Judas Iscariot saw that what was taking place regarding Jesus, how he had been beaten, how he had been mocked and condemned, and he was remorseful. The, the word remorseful, it's an, it's an interesting one. Written in the King James Version, it says that he repented himself. And really, it does not carry with it any inclination of repentance to God. I have uh, some different study tools that I use when I do my Bible studies and, and try and prepare uh, the message. I have a, a favorite uh, Greek lexicon uh, that I like to use. And, and I, I want to read from you the, the definition of how they explained this uh, Greek word uh, translated for us, remorseful. Okay? It, it defines the word uh, as having the meaning of changing one's mind or purpose after having done something regrettable. And then he goes on to contrast it. And he contrasted it with the Greek word for true repentance. And, and, and contrasted with that word, it expresses just the mere desire that what is done may be undone. Accompanied with regrets or even remorse, but with no effective change of heart. That's what this word in the Greek means, and this word remorse. Uh, on the part of man, it means little or nothing more than a selfish dread of the consequence of what one has done, whereas repentance means regret and forsaking the evil by a change of heart brought about by God's Spirit. Judas did not repent. The words are very different. He was stricken with guilt over the consequence of his sin. 
But not over the sin itself. He was sad because of the way it made him feel rather than the way that it made the Lord feel. And that's a big difference. And so often is the case with those who are caught in sin. They are stricken with emotions over being caught in sin, or the consequences that are being brought on because of their sin. And they are not stricken with emotion over their actual sin. You see the difference? And I've seen this time and time again in my years of ministry. People are saddened by the consequences. They're saddened by the repercussions of their hidden sin that's been found out, that a light has been shined upon. But they're not disgusted by their actual sin. And they'll make all sorts of excuses for their sin. And they'll try to minimize their sin. And they'll try to justify their, their sin. Or they'll spread around some of the fault of the sin. It was because of this and because of that. And, and there's no disgust in their heart for the sin that they've committed. The scripture tells us of two different types of sorrow. There's godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. One produces repentance and leads to salvation. The other produces death. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it states this. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas didn't have godly sorrow that led to repentance, that led to salvation. People have previously asked, do you think Judas will be in heaven? And and I'm not the Lord, and and you guys can be very, very thankful for that. Um, But but my answer is no. Jesus called Judas the son of perdition, said it would be better if he wasn't even born. That's not something you say of someone that's been forgiven of their sins. No, I, I, Judas, he had the sorrow of the world. And it didn't lead to repentance, and it didn't lead to salvation. It led to his death, as we will see. Judas was remorseful, and he brought back the money that was given to him for his cooperation in handing Jesus over to the religious leaders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knew that Jesus was innocent. Jesus' innocence is a theme that's throughout uh, the entire events of this early morning. Judas knew that he was innocent. Pilate is going to come to the same conclusion that Jesus was innocent. Uh, we're not spoken of it in Matthew, but Herod is even going to say this man's not hasn't done anything uh, in fault, has no fault that he was an innocent man because Jesus was an innocent man. Judas's testimony regarding the innocence of Jesus is very telling of the integrity of the life that Jesus lived. It was Spurgeon who said this, Judas had been with our Lord in public and in private. And if he could have found a flaw in Christ's character, this would have been the time to mention it. But even the traitor in his dying speech declared that Jesus was innocent. You know, as I mentioned 
before. People who are sorry because of the consequences of their sin, they'll always look for ways out. And they'll always look for ways to justify things. Judas, if ever he saw Jesus do something wrong, would have most definitely brought that forward to help lift the weight of guilt that he was feeling. Well, he's not so innocent because I remember, you know, a couple years ago I saw him do this or do that. And when we were together, I saw him, you know, you know looking at that girl or doing uh, this or, or, you know, kicking the dog or whatever it could have been. But no such comments come forth. No justification or excuses for why he did what he did. He knew that Jesus was innocent of ever doing anything wrong. And, and the guilt was too heavy for him to bear. Continuing verse 4, it says, And they, uh, the chief priests and the elders, they, they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The response of the chief priest and elders is very revealing of their heart and their wickedness. They said to Judas, what is that to us? You see to it. Basically they're saying, hey, that's your problem, bro. Suck it up, deal with it. The reality of the matter is that the religious leaders just didn't care. They didn't care about justice or doing the right thing. They didn't care about Judas or the condition of his soul in this moment. Remember, they're the priests, right? And they're going to go and I'm going to confess my sin. I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. Wait, we, I don't care. Well, they're the, they're the people that are supposed to help you in that situation. They don't care. They don't care about his guilt or his life. They used him for what they could get, and now they are done with him. My pastor, Rick Barnett, and he says that is exactly how Satan and sin and the world works. And to bargain with any of these is to make yourself a sucker to getting used and abused and thrown away. When we bargain with Satan, when we bargain with sin and the world, you can expect to get used and abused. That's what's going to happen. That's exactly what happened to Judas. He served his purpose, and now they don't want anything to do with him. They're done with him. They throw him out like, like garbage. Eh? We don't care. You do whatever you, you need to deal with it yourself. Don't fall into the temptation of the world thinking that you're getting a good deal. Or that you're going to make out okay. You will find yourself on the losing side every single time. When you start to bargain with sin. And with the world. And with Satan. You're not going to win. Judas responded by throwing down the pieces of silver at their feet in the temple and departing. And this is interesting to me. You see the money. The money was what was used as a lure for him to make the deal in the first place. Judas was a thief. He regularly stole from the money box that he was entrusted to keep amongst the disciples. But that wasn't enough. And when stealing off the top of the money box wasn't enough, he sought to cash in on the Lord to see what he could get for him. And they offered him 30 pieces of silver and he jumped at the opportunity. But herein lies the problem. 
Sin doesn't satisfy. It doesn't last. Oh, we think it will last. We think it will satisfy us. Satisfaction really is. It's the lure. Satisfaction is the lure that sin uses to entice us. That it will be satisfying. That we will enjoy it. That it will bring happiness. That it will bring all we ever really wanted. Judas took the bait. He bit into that lure. And ultimately he found himself unsatisfied. Upset. Unfulfilled. James writes of this lure of sin and the consequences of giving into it. He wrote in James chapter 1 verse 14 and 15. He said, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That idea of a lure, right? You got any fishermen in here? Ain't you the lure? It lures the fish out, and it looks good, and then eventually they seize upon it. They act upon it. James says, We're drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when in his full grown, brings forth death. Our own selfish desire for satisfaction leads us into sin and ultimately brings about death and destruction. When we seek to be satisfied by the world, when we seek to be satisfied by sin, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And let me tell you this, sin is never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied. You will never find completion in sin You will never have enough. You will always be left wanting. The very thing that Judas longed after, the thing that that once sparkled in his eyes, has become disgust to him as he cast it on the floor of the temple. And Judas went and hanged himself. Sorrow of the world produces death. Judas killed himself. He was a man that was left empty from his sin, discarded by others, and instead of repenting to the Lord, he went and took his own life. And and it's a sad, sad ending to a life that had so much potential. As you think of the opportunities that he had to walk with the Lord and to be with Him. And he threw it all away for something that he thought would satisfy him, but ultimately was garbage to him. Don't fall into that same trap. Sin will not satisfy. Verse 6 says, But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for, uh, to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. Uh, amazing. In their own words and actions, they are condemning themselves, actually. They knew the money was given to Judas as a payout in exchange for Jesus' innocent life. They didn't want to mix this blood money with the money that was in the treasury. And and again, I I just look at the hypocrisy. It's, It's so undeniable. They don't want to taint the money in the treasury, but at the same time, they don't care about the life of an innocent man about to be killed, about to be crucified. And they don't care about the life of another man that's stricken with with guilt and looking for help. They only care about themselves and keeping up that facade of their godly devotion. And again, we need to be careful. God looks at the heart. 
verse 7 through 10. It says, And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. The religious leaders uh, talked about it amongst themselves, and they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a place for the burial of strangers. Now, and I, this is also interest, interesting to me. It interests me. You see, during that day, if a potter uh, discovered cracks or chips uh, in something that he had made, he would throw the marred vessel outside of his shop. Uh, over time, this area would become full of, of broken pottery. Okay? Uh, they would have a land next to their house where they could discard all of this really useless pottery. Okay? And because the land was filled with broken pottery, it would not be good for growing anything in it. It would be too difficult to till and rid the land of all the pottery, and so it was near useless piece of land, a near useless piece of land. But the religious leaders, they thought of a good use for it. They thought, well, we can, we can use it to bury dead bodies of strangers that, that don't have a place for their remains. Uh, those that are in Jerusalem that die and, and they need to have a proper burial uh, but don't have family or anyone to take care of them, we can bury them in this potter's field. Again, I find this quite interesting because the, the blood money of Jesus Christ was used to buy a field that would be filled, filled a, by a field that would be filled excuse me, with broken pots and dead bodies. And do you see the symbolism here? There's some symbolism here. The blood money of Jesus Christ, the price of His life, was used to buy a field that was filled with broken pots and dead bodies. Guess what? We're the broken pots and dead bodies. Jesus Christ paid the price for us. And He purchased us with his blood, that blood money, it bought a field that was filled with broken pots and, and dead bodies. Without Christ, we are nothing more than dead bodies in our sin. We are broken pots, broken people. But with Christ, we are given new life. Jesus takes the broken parts of our lives and he restores them like only he can. And I, I think it's just a great little picture of the gospel here. God leading the chief priest and elders to buy a potter's field with the blood money of his son, a field that would be filled with a bunch of broken pots and dead bodies, a fitting description of lost humanity. And not only is it a small picture of what God has done for us, but it is also a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, some people look at this and, and try and look at this portion of Scripture and say, oh, this is an error in the Bible. Hey, if your Bible has any cross-references or uh, you, know, you can look at it, if it's keyed and it'll tell you, that this portion, this prophecy will be keyed to Zechariah, a, prophet, uh, a prophecy by the prophet Zechariah. Okay? Uh, but here Matthew attributes Jeremiah as the prophet that said this. Uh, the, the, the supposed discrepancy here I really think is, it isn't that big of a deal and it can be easily explained. 
Okay, this prophecy very well could have been spoken by Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet that was very familiar with the potter's house. Okay? It was the Lord who spoke specifically to Jeremiah about going down to the potter's house in Jeremiah chapter 18. Also, Jeremiah was instructed to purchase a field in Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, It could be that this prophecy was spoken by Jeremiah, but later recorded by Zechariah, both inspired of the Holy Spirit. Also, uh, it was very common during that time to uh, associate Jeremiah with the other works of the prophets. Okay? Unlike our Bible, when you start to go through the prophets, the first prophet that you come to in the major prophets is Isaiah. Okay? But in the, the Jewish canonization of the, of the scriptures, the first prophet that you come to is Jeremiah. And so the scrolls of the prophets would begin with Jeremiah. And so uh, some uh, suggest that it was um, based upon this order of, of the writings of the Old Testament prophets that the scroll that contained Jeremiah's prophecy also contained some of the other prophets, Zechariah's prophet and, uh, prophecy. Matthew could be referring to the scroll of Jeremiah, which contains within it the prophecy of Zechariah. Uh, lastly, there are other examples, uh, another possibility to explain this, in the Bible of mixed quotes, okay? uh, where prophecies or quotations are combined from two different prophets or two different sources, but accredited to only one. An example of this is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Mark 1, 2 attributes a quotation to Isaiah that was really a combination of a prophecy that was spoken by Isaiah as well as Malachi. And so in this instance, Mark gives precedent to the greater work of Isaiah over the work of the minor prophet Malachi. And so even in Mark, we see that you know, a prophecy from Malachi and a prophecy from Isaiah were combined and ascribed to Isaiah. Okay? doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that they attributed it to the major, uh, more major of the, of the works. And so this too could be the case here, where Jeremiah's words about the potter's house and buying a field are being linked together with Zechariah's prophecy, uh, but overall contributed the, the quote or the prophecy to Jeremiah as the greater work of prophecy. And so we see, you know, there are a couple different ways that we could easily explain this. And uh, which is it? I, I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of them. Okay? I would just bring it up to be able to say, if someone says, oh, look, the Bible's got errors in it. You know what? We can actually just look at it real closely. There's many ways to explain things that, you know, it, it, you don't give up and say, oh, no, my faith is shattered. You know, there's an error. No, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, okay? And there's easy ways to, to reconcile things that where people would say, oh, there's discrepancies. No, just do a little study, okay? You can, you can explain these things, okay? All right, let's continue on and finish off our text for this morning. Verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Just as Jesus had previously done when asked by Caiaphas if he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus here affirms Pilate's question regarding whether he is the King of the Jews. It is as you say. And I find it interesting that this is what Pilate asks Jesus. 
Up until this point, the only thing the religious leaders had on Jesus was that he committed blasphemy by claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. The religious leaders haven't said anything about Jesus being a king. But remember how our portion of Scripture opened up today. The Sanhedrin got together and they plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And part of that plotting, I believe, part of that scheming had to do with figuring out what they were going to say to Pilate to make, them, uh, make him agree with them that Jesus was deserving of death. If they simply came to Pilate and said, we want you to crucify this guy because he claimed to be God's son, okay, there's no way that Pilate would agree to it. He could care less what their religious beliefs. Okay? They had to come up with something else, something to show that Jesus was a threat, a threat that needed to be dealt with swiftly and decisively, and it would appear that they have told Pilate that Jesus has made himself out to be a king. And there is no other king but Caesar. Later on in the book of John, as Pilate would try and distance himself from this, and he said they'll accuse him, saying... Any man who makes himself out to be a king and you don't deal with it, you know, you're no friend of Caesar, basically. He, the, my paraphrase, right? He, you're no friend of Caesar if you're not going to deal with this guy who says he's a king. And so they're, they're accusing him, saying, hey, we're going we're to take this to Rome. And we're going to tell Caesar that you're not dealing with this guy who's claiming to be a king. Verse 12 tells us that the chief priests made other accusations as well. Matthew doesn't record them for us, but we can read of them in the other gospel accounts. Luke chapter 23 verse 2 tells us of three accusations that they brought against Jesus. The first one was that they found Jesus perverting the nation. And the connotation that uh, was that Jesus was misleading the people. He um, was seducing them. And he was turning them away from the standard, the way things are supposed to be. They accused Jesus of leading people into the practice of not paying taxes to Caesar. Okay, even forbidding it as if to say that it was, it was wrong to pay taxes to Caesar. And lastly, uh, that he tried to make a claim as a king, a political ruler in opposition of the Roman rule of Caesar. And of course, all of these accusations are, are deceptively false. Okay? Uh, the only one that was close to true was that Jesus was a king, but he wasn't the type of king that was looking to make a political power play against Caesar, as they no doubt led him to believe. And, and even though they made all sorts of accusations, Jesus didn't answer any of them. Even after Pilate further questioned him, asking him about these accusations that they presented, Jesus didn't answer to any of them. Verse 14 tells us that it caused Pilate to, to marvel greatly at, at this lack of response. And we need to consider some of Pilate's previous encounters with the Jews. Okay? To him, the Jews were an obstinate group, wasn't afraid to speak their mind. They weren't afraid to stick their neck out and, uh, to defend themselves. And yet here, Jesus, the king of the Jews stands quiet before his accusers. And, and Pilate is at a loss. We're going to find out that uh, he's going to find out. Part of the accusations that are brought forth in another gospel is that he was uh, involved in some mishappenings in Galilee. And when Pilate hears that, he thinks that's his opportunity. Oh, 
you're under Herod's jurisdiction. And it's not written for us in the book of Matthew, but he's going to send him to Herod to try and wash his hands of it because he doesn't know what to do with this guy. We're going to end there for now, okay? Come back next week, okay? Same bat channel, same bat time. You know, we're going to come back. We're going to continue this portion of Scripture. Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and what happens? How does Pilate handle this situation of an innocent man being brought before him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, this opportunity just to spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and most importantly, to spend time with you. And Father, I do pray that as we went through your word that we were all, that we all heard your voice. Lord, maybe it was a voice of encouragement. A voice that said, even in the darkest of days, I'm still in control. And we can take comfort and take hope in that. Father, maybe it was a word for some of us who are entertaining sin. It was a warning, a strong warning Sin is just going to use us and abuse us. It's going to leave us wanting. It's going to destroy us. It's going to lead to death. Father, I pray if anyone is here in that situation, that they would repent, that they would have godly sorrow that, that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. Father, I pray that we would understand the beauty of your son's sacrifice and what he's enduring for us because of the love that he has for us, that we might have a a way prepared for us, that we might come to you and that we might have fellowship restored to you. Father, I pray that we take advantage of that precious gift every day. We find ourselves just falling more and more in love with you, desiring to know you and to live for you in all that we do. I pray and I I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.